0: $50 off your device that's soberlink.com forward slash t a m and let accountability be your guide hello everyone welcome to the addicted mind podcast my name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host and we are on to episode 104 wow I can't believe that that's amazing My guest today is Daniel Snyder, and he is going to talk about the decriminalization and legalization of drugs, and uh, he's going to share a little bit of his own story of recovery from a heroin addiction and how he now advocates for changing how we work with people who are struggling with addiction. It's a great conversation and a really important topic, so I'm so glad that he reached out and came on the podcast and and shared his wisdom. I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. Before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, think about Rating and reviewing us in iTunes or sharing the podcast with a friend. And don't forget, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in The Addicted Mind Podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Daniel Snyder, and he is going to talk about his own journey of recovery, but he's also going to talk about the opioid crisis and the overdose crisis. And also we're going to talk a little bit about uh, drug policy and particularly looking at like um, decriminalization and legalization. So I have a lot of questions about that. Daniel, you want to introduce yourself?
1: Morning, Duane. Yeah, I'm Daniel Snyder. So I'm coming out of uh, just outside Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I'm a project and peer coordinator with our action table here in Langley that is responding to the ongoing overdose crisis. So in British Columbia, we declared a public health emergency uh, just over four years ago in response to the rising and alarming number of fatal overdoses in the province, a really dramatic spike. And my own journey through opioid addiction, I was basically addicted to heroin on and off for 15 years. And Realizing, learning about this crisis uh, that was ongoing, I realized I really had an opportunity to play some sort of role in sharing my story in how I was impacted by addiction and and how perhaps our current approaches, current social attitudes towards drug use is not helping a lot of people.
0: So let's jump in and, and just talk about that. Well, let's start with your story, and then how that manifested itself, and then how you want to change that view. It sounds like,
1: yeah. So I don't fit into a typical narrative, and when I say narrative, I am mainly framing addiction around the way it's presented at large to to us in society. So for a lot of people who aren't directly impacted, their perception is is formed by what they see in the media, and uh, the media has a strong tendency of focusing on the most uh, damaging and and obvious of cases. So we're talking about, well, the downtown east end of Vancouver is a perfect example. It's, It's essentially world famous for all the wrong reasons in terms of drug use, open drug use, homelessness, and you know, it's inevitable that if you look at a newspaper or watch a, a leading story on on this overdose crisis, you're going to see back alleys and injection drug use. And the perception might be that that's precisely what addiction looks like. And uh, I, I was never homeless. I was never out of work. I always maintained, uh, maintained employment. And if you'd walk past me, during the years I was in active addiction, you wouldn't have had one of those stereotypical thoughts about me that, that perhaps many of us are guilty of in, in the sense of, uh, oh, look, there goes a drug addict. And I spent um, most of my years in addiction working really, really hard at trying to hide it. Right. Yeah. Keep it a secret, not allow people to find out what was really going on with me and what was underneath that or what the reasons were for that are are perhaps complex and, and nuanced and part of my own story, but also part of the larger story of our, our society and, and our attitudes towards people who use substances.
0: Right, and I think a lot of people, their addiction is hidden. It's not seen. They need help, they need support, but because of the stigma around addiction, they can't reach out, or I mean, they don't wanna reach out, or it's, it's more difficult to reach out because of the consequences of reaching out
1: hundred percent. Addiction is one of those things in our, that we reduce people to these one word labels constantly. We put the addict label on certain people. Maybe it's friends and family. I mean, we're not doing this with the intention of uh, hurting them, but it has a bizarre side effect of reducing them to just a set of behaviors without really considering what's going on underneath the surface. What's the reason that this person is struggling with addiction? We just want to focus in on the outward behaviors. And uh, the world we've been that I grew up in, and uh, that's been ongoing since even before I was born, is this one in which we have for the most part said drugs are bad. And we got to eradicate drugs, we got to eradicate them completely from society, hence the uh, DEA and the drug war. And we got to stop people from using them. And I think we've clearly missed the point here. It's pretty evident that that drug war has failed. And what we really need to be looking to do is mitigate the harms that are caused by by substances in our society. We're not going to get rid of them. People will always be choosing to use substances. And so our, our efforts should be focused on reducing the harm both to the user and to, to the society around them.
0: So tell me a little bit about your story and how you started to get clean or how you started to get help and how how do you want to change that and how would that be different
1: yeah. So in my early years of substance use, I didn't realize I had a problem. I think that's pretty typical for a lot of people. You're having fun, right. you're young. Um, it's not really causing a lot of consequences yet, perhaps uh, wasn't affecting my relationships or anything. And then, you know, something happens. I had a bit of a an encounter with a roommate that turned violent and the police got involved. And that was kind of one of those moments that a person has in which they realize, hey, life's uh, not quite turning out the way I anticipated all this drug use has been a lot of fun, but it seems to be causing some problems as well. And so I, that was kind of the beginning of a recovery journey that took a really long time. And I think that that's a really important thing to recognize is that uh, recovery or coming to, coming to the awareness that, hey, there's a, there's a problem here and I want to make some changes to it is not something that we can just turn on a dime. It's, it's a, there's a lot of up and downs. I look at my life in retrospect, I look at that journey kind of like a, a really volatile stock ticker. If you're looking at a stock chart for some company that's uh, had a lot of ups and downs, you'll see that... Um, I, my life would hit really great points. I'd achieve uh, what my goal was, was uh, sobriety for a period of time, maybe six months or a year. That that happened multiple times during that journey. And then it would bottom out and I would lack really any insight into why that would happen. My, my uh, stock would drop, so to speak. Uh, but if you step back from the picture and look at it from a more of a big picture perspective, you can see that there was a process of a trend over that period of time. So I'm talking about 15 years here where I can see that despite the ups and downs, I was, uh, I was gaining, I was learning. And one of the really key things that uh, I think was um, perhaps a hindrance to me was my attitude, my perception around relapse. It's kind of a common thing to say now or to understand, particularly in, in recovery circles, that relapse does happen. I've heard the saying relapse is a part of recovery, which I'm not, a, I'm not super keen on that as a saying, but I understand the spirit behind it, I suppose, in that there's a process going on here and sometimes, you know, there are setbacks. My perception, however, was that each one of those setbacks was absolute failure. I was starting at day one, I was resetting to, uh, to the beginning and it took a friend of mine asking me the question, why did you relapse? to really stir me into thinking a little more critically, becoming a little more self-aware of what was going on in my life because I did not have an answer to that question when it was asked of me. And I thought for a moment and I said, you know, I don't know why I had this relapse. And he he said very wisely, if you can't answer that question, you'll never break this cycle. Right, and it yeah. was then that I really, really realized that... Uh, This isn't about failure. This isn't about resetting back to square one. This is about learning.
0: So it sounds like you really moved into what I would kind of call a growth model of recovery, meaning that each time you don't have a success or something doesn't go quite right in your recovery process, you take that time to really reflect, understand yourself, and that shift in your thinking. Really helped you start to understand your own process.
1: Yeah, I, I attached myself to SMART Recovery, so that's uh, a cognitive behavioral therapy model. Um, right, and that was life changing for me. Now I can sound somewhat critical of uh, AA and A and the twelve steps, and I don't intend to be critical, but uh, my my experience with it wasn't overly positive, actually it was quite young when I was introduced to that model. And I remember one of the first things that I heard was once an addict, always an addict. And again, it's one of those kind of cliche sayings that I think I understand the spirit of it. I understand what's intended. It's kind of a mantra of not becoming complacent and being conscious of where you've been and the, the ease for which one could fall back into that space. Right. But I interpreted it uh, really as just a hopeless statement and it kind of drives back to the what I was saying initially about the way we reduce people struggling with addiction to these one word labels. We throw this addict label on the person. We kind of suggest, hey, now you're an addict and you will always be an addict. And I, I digested that as uh, there's no point. This is hopeless. You're going to struggle forever and you will never, uh, never overcome.
0: This is your life, right? This is, this is it. And you're not, you're not going to be able to change it beyond that.
1: Totally. Yeah. I just really, now, I don't think everyone reacts to that statement in the same way that I did. So this kind of reveals that we need to look at people as unique individuals and find the path and journey that's best for them. Because obviously the 12 steps uh, and NA helps tons of people it's not uh that's not even up for debate so it's it's not about bashing the program it's about understanding that each person is unique and they need to find the path that works for them
0: well i also think we're growing in our understanding of addiction as well and being able to see it in an even broader picture
1: yeah i agree i also had a real struggle with The emphasis, the real emphasis on days of sobriety as if that was the bottom line. And I I almost attribute it to like idolizing days clean as opposed to quality of the days and what you're learning and how you're growing in that time. And the the shame and the guilt that I experienced as someone part of that program when I did have a lapse and did have um, to humble myself and then start from square one, you know, where you're, you're back in that situation where you're grabbing the, um, just for today fob and you're, you're, you're putting yourself out there as saying, Hey, I, I've, I've fallen short and there's, there's a truth in that. But for me, it was, uh, I, I was much more interested in personal growth, personal responsibility and the whole, a uh, number of days wasn't my bottom line, although abstinence was my final goal. That was what I recognized right. I was after.
0: Well, it's like I always say that I, I don't think addiction can heal through the lens of shame anyway. So you trying to use shame to motivate yourself to remain clean or whatever goal you want usually never works out that well anyway.
1: Yeah, I was hiding for sure uh, in this guilt and shame. And it was perhaps one of the reasons right there is why I I used alone all the time. I did not want to be open and vulnerable with people who were in my life. I I had this fear of losing my job if people found out about my addiction. So shame and and guilt were overwhelming driving forces in in keeping me hidden. And in the context of... uh, the ongoing overdose crisis, that, that's now a killer. It's a miracle that I'm alive. Fentanyl was not the problem it is today when I was using. It was not uh, as present in the drug supply. In British Columbia, we have pretty uh, in-depth data and tracking related to the overdose crisis. We get updates on a very regular basis. We actually have our our... Overdose uh, data for the month of May 2020 already. So we're one month behind. And in May of 2020, we experienced uh, uh, British Columbia had 170 fatal overdoses, which is an average of 5.5 people per day. Wow. It's the highest number ever recorded in the province. Obviously, COVID is playing a role in that. We've been we've been telling people for the last four years to please don't use drugs alone. Please have a buddy. Please stay with others. And then we all of a sudden switched in March to telling people to uh, isolate and um, stay away from other people. And the the obvious consequences were increased overdose deaths. Just just devastating.
0: Not as much safety. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's- that's tragic.
1: So in 2012, we had uh, fentanyl was detected in about four percent of fatal overdoses in this province, and now, as of 2018, it was in eighty-seven percent of fatal overdoses. So it's just saturated the drug supply at large. And uh, I'm grateful that I didn't have to have to deal with that because my use was always behind closed doors.
0: Right. So you, you know, through your own journey, it sounds like now you want to advocate for individuals out there who who want the same support that you got
1: i was grateful to have a number of family and friends that saw real potential in me and they did not do that reducing to to just this is your lot in life and attached to that was this real messy part of the family stuff when when you have a loved one that's struggling with an addiction is is that fine line between tough love and enabling a person and it's we we try and really make this black and white and obviously it's just not if you if you talk to anyone that's got a family member the concern is often am I enabling this individual and so they may go overboard in one direction to prevent enabling and they operate in this tough love model which I mean the the worst case scenario, in my opinion, is the the intervention model that we we've seen in that terrible TV show, where essentially, you know, you you blindside a person, you sit them down, and and tell them that if they don't make a choice to change today, they are cut out of your life. Right.
0: The success rate on that is is really really low.
1: It's dismal, and it's just it's it's so devastating, and it it. Rem- Immediately, I think of uh, Johan Hari's slogan about uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And, and here we are, an addicted individual is already in themselves completely aware of how disconnected they are from themselves, from their relationships, from society. And now we, we sit them down and tell them that we are going to further disconnect them. Right. We're going to reinforce the fact that you are, you are separated from us and we're going to let you know that your behavior is the bottom line and we're going to separate from you even more. And then we expect them to somehow rise above their, their guilt and shame that they already feel inherently and, and change. It doesn't surprise me at all that that leads to failure almost every time.
0: Right. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, the you have to have connection to heal. You have to have connection to heal shame. You have to have connection to heal all these things with other people. I have this saying, it's like, we heal through the eyes of others, right? We, we need other people who can care for us enough when we can't care for ourselves. So this kind of goes to our, our, our next topic, which is talking about these changes in addiction treatment or these policy changes. So let's talk a little bit about that too.
1: Sure. So I actually grew up fairly uh, on the conservative side of the spectrum and I'm not thrilled with having to bring politics into this discussion but unfortunately we are talking about drug policy and so it's just self-evident that that there's different perspectives and I was uh, I was a person who in my early years in addiction when I started learning about uh, the harm reduction model in in British Columbia we had a rollout in the uh, late 90s called the four pillars and harm reduction was was really touted as one of the main pillars of the response to the the addiction crisis and I I was completely against it because I really viewed this stuff in a very black and white lens. And my perception was that if we use that model, if we're handing out needles, if we're creating things like safe consumption sites, we are enabling drug use, we're perpetuating the problem. And I, I've come full circle on that. I have a completely different perspective, which was primarily motivated by. The overdose crisis, the increase in deaths, made me realize very acutely that you cannot help someone who is not alive. And I know through my own journey in addiction that I wasn't always in a moment where I I was ready or willing to start making changes, obviously. There were many days where I was... Completely content to just carry on using, carry on in the mess that I felt myself was in, that I was in. And I recognize that we need to, we really need to meet people where where they're at. So this goes back to recognizing the the primary motivation now should be reducing harm and creating connection points for individuals. And
0: I was going to just comment on that because I'm in that ballpark as well in the harm reduction approach. And I was wondering about how this other policy, kind of policies from the past, come from the misconception of this willpower that, you know, everybody has this infinite amount of willpower and they're just not exercising it. They just exercise their willpower, then this would not be a problem. So it's kind of like, get your act together. This is your choice. And as we understand addiction now, We know that's not how it works.
1: No, it's not how it works. And while I mean, I've already talked about it being a process quite extensively, we need to have a little more grace and compassion for people. We need to look underneath the behavior, underneath the particular addiction struggle and try and dig underneath and find out what is going on for this person. I mean, the substances serve a purpose. They're They're not being used because it's all about entertainment or they are doing something for that person, what are they doing for them? And while, while there's consequences attached, it seems that those consequences are less significant than the pain the person is trying to escape from. So what is that pain? What's underneath what's going on for that person?
0: And give them the support to be able to, you know, either understand that pain or transcend that pain Mm -hmm. or change it or however that's going to be for them.
1: Yeah. If you're in really deep, uh, you are in such a cycle uh, and a pattern of drug seeking. I mean, I spent how many hours a day? Uh, Probably half my day was spent on either getting the money for substances or. Planning to get them, trying to make a connection point with a with a, a dealer, and then using them. And there was little time for other things. Now I already mentioned that I I had some pretty significant privileges in terms of not losing my housing, maintaining employment, having the ability for whatever reason to do a, a relatively good job at keeping it secret from people. But others don't have that same opportunity. That if you're homeless, your your day to day, minute to minute existence is consumed by by just surviving there is no ability and no time to think about housing or your next meal or what you know what you want to do next week that's not on the table so if you're if your mind wants if you want to go down the road of connecting with recovery or something like that you have no choice but to stay in that space you you can't think about it you can't so the idea of harm reduction and say say take for instance a safe consumption site you are can You are creating a connection point for an individual whose life is in absolute chaos, most likely, who really doesn't have the ability to think down the road. And you are becoming a place where they can see somebody that is consistently there, that is accepting them for where they're at, that hopefully uh, is able to Call out some potential in them and say, hey, there, there's opportunities here. There's other resources we can connect you with. There's other services available to you. And if you can do that, then perhaps that person can find some ability to, to stabilize. And I, I think a service like that attaches to other, other ideas like Housing First, where We recognize that if we can house individuals, they they can stabilize a little bit. And if they can stabilize, they can start thinking about other parts of their life. And on the conservative side of the spectrum, that's often a hard sell unless we just break it down into data and we start talking about the dollar signs. And uh, when you tell people that, hey, it's actually less of a burden to taxpayers to house individuals than it is to leave them homeless. The cost on the system, the justice system, first responders, the city cleanup, all that stuff is actually greater than the cost of just putting that person in in some sort of house and then giving them an opportunity to stabilize, connecting them with resources. So I'm all about healthy connection points.
0: Right. It gives them a safe place to reach out and get help and get the support they need. And yeah, I I believe that too. I think it saves money in the long run. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit more about the decriminalization and legalization issues as well, because I wanted to talk to you about that.
1: So decriminalize, uh, often those two are confused. Decriminalization is essentially like people will phrase it decriminalizing drugs. And I think it would be better stated as decriminalizing drug users. It's attached to the same ideas that I've already talked about in the sense that we need to stop disconnecting people from society. We need to connect them. So you're dealing with a substance use disorder, perhaps. You've been stopped by the police and found that you're in possession of some illegal drugs. And uh, the system, generally speaking, that could result in jail time. jails, and prisons disconnect people from society. So the idea of decriminalization is to say, hey, we are no longer going to treat people who use drugs as criminals. Now, we've done this with alcohol. And in Canada and some parts of the U.S., we've now done this with cannabis. And it's changing attitudes and perceptions in a very significant way. We should also do this with other currently illegal drugs. The way we treat drugs in our society has been very arbitrary. It's a very dark history. If you look into the drug war and the motivations behind it, there are racist overtones. There are all sorts of Motives that were not based in caring about individuals. They were based in discrimination and all sorts of uh, attitudes that are just clearly not realistic. They were also based in complete misunderstanding of, of substances. I mean, 1950s U.S. drug propaganda against marijuana suggested that if you smoked a joint, there was potential for you to murder your parents with an axe. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: no, I know. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about drugs and addiction, yeah.
1: Right. And I mean, one of my perceptions is just that, listen, if we've decided that we're going to legalize and regulate alcohol, which was a conclusion we came to 100 years ago because we recognize that alcohol uh, is something people want, and whether it's legal or illegal, people are still going to use it. And there are actually greater harms from the illegal market than there are from the legal market, because we can control it. We can regulate it. We can make sure that people that are purchasing it are purchasing a safe product. If you go to the liquor store and you buy a bottle of wine or a bottle of whiskey, you're, you're pretty convinced that that's what's inside of it. You don't have any fear or risk that you're going to get some contaminated product. And when we create go to prohibition models when we create uh, what immediately happens is black markets are created. And the iron law prohibition suggests that uh, when we create a black market, the black market springs up and harder, more potent, more potentially toxic products saturate the black market. So products that weigh less, that take up less volume that are easy to smuggle and store and transport. So this would be the what fentanyl is in, in the market. I mean, the drug of choice among people that use opioids would be probably heroin. I mean, probably synthetic, uh, probably hydromorph. But fentanyl is cheap. It's really cheap to produce. It doesn't require precursors. You don't, you don't need to grow poppies in a field. You can do it in a, in a small lab with just a few uh, ingredients. And so fentanyl makes its way to the black market A kilogram of heroin, profit, $60,000. A kilogram of fentanyl, we're talking $1 million plus. So strictly... Strictly from a business perspective, fentanyl is highly cost effective. And if I'm a supplier, the grim reality is that the cost of doing business for me is that some of my, some of my customers die.
0: Right. So, so what you're saying is by legalizing it, we can regulate it and control it, make it safer for people who are using it. They, they would have some sense of safety there. And then also have some control over it. You take out all the criminal element because it's regulated. It doesn't become, I guess, as profitable (laughs) in a way. And you could tax it and put that back into treatment. I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with that.
1: It seems counterintuitive because we're still operating from this perspective where drugs are bad. Like that's when you're right. trying to sell this to people. I, I mean, legalization is a really hard sell at this point. And I don't think our societies are prepared for heroin or cocaine to be for sale on a, on a legal, regular, regulated market. I don't think we're there yet. And I think that's why the decriminalization approach is what is being primarily focused on. First, we need to stop treating people who use any drug as a criminal. And decriminalization would be a step towards legalization. There are cons. there's examples of this all over the place. Mexico closed liquor stores during coronavirus because they were not deemed essential by the Mexican government. And immediately a black market for alcohol sprang up and 100 people died in a month from toxic alcohol. So it's not something that's, you know, debatable, like black when we prohibit something the black market springs up. Demand for substances will always be there. We simply need to try a different way. One of the fears that people have is that perhaps um, legalizing will increase increase use. It'll make more people want to use more substances. And yeah, you know, there's probably some reality to that. But at the very least, they're using safe substances. We have a toxic drug supply now where people have no clue what they're getting. So if I did perhaps decide that I was uh, someone who wanted to do cocaine once in a while, I mean, the vast majority of people who who use substances do so responsibly and safely. The vast majority, not everyone that tries cocaine gets addicted. The whole idea of, you know, you just do heroin once and you're, you're an addict is just ridiculous. People have have good lives and can occasionally use substances. This is obvious. If we look at alcohol, some people develop addictions. So if I'm someone who decides that I, uh, I decide I'm going to do cocaine occasionally, maybe it's new year's Eve and I'm going to do a little bit. Well, in this, in this climate, it's, it's a death wish. It's Russian roulette. I mean, I am constantly, you don't know what
0: you're going to get. You have no idea
1: you don't know what you're going to get. I'm constantly getting reports of uh, cocaine, ketamine, MDMA, crystal meth, being contaminated by fentanyl. And most of the people that are seeking stimulants are not, they're, they're opiate naive. They're not people that use these drugs, uh, use a drug like heroin or fentanyl on any kind of regular basis. So the smallest amount, trace amounts, have the potential to cause an overdose in someone like that.
0: Right. But I think it causes a lot of fear too. Like when you say, let's just legalize it, there's kind of a fear like, oh my goodness, you know, like what's going to happen? It's going to all fall apart.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I'm not talking about this as uh, the, the perfect solution. I mean, if, you, if you're involved in politics for any period of time, you realize there is no policy that doesn't have harms attached to it. Maybe it benefits a lot of people and it, it causes some harm to some others. This is the, the never ending war in politics and why approval ratings are always low, no matter who you are, because someone's always unhappy. So, but what we are talking about Back to my main my main point is reducing harm, and the data is pretty clear. This would reduce harm. It would reduce overdose deaths. It would reduce incarceration. It would reduce cost to taxpayers. And would there be some potential fallout and negative? Well, of course. But all decisions that policymakers make have that as a caveat, and we we've learned to live with those. We need to uh, look at this from a perspective that is outside of our emotional involvement. And when you're a family, I'm someone who struggled with heroin addiction for 15 years. It nearly killed me. I overdosed once and was saved by paramedics. I still think that we need to regulate it and create a safe supply. When you're a family member who has a loved one that's struggling with addiction and you see that drug is killing them, killing them slowly, or they suddenly die of a fatal overdose, the idea of legalizing these substances and making them available is too emotionally charged for you to look at objectively. And we need to find a way to help policymakers understand this issue and family members to step back and look at this a little more objectively. There's an organization here in Canada called Moms Stop the Harm. It's uh, composed of moms and family members who have lost children and loved ones to, to overdose and they are on board with ideas like safe supply, providing safe substances to people who are struggling with addiction. Let's keep them alive and give them an opportunity to, to make a change if they choose to down the road. They're on board with decriminalization and, and the legalization conversation is starting to get on the table because people realize that we need to change the way we've done the, this war on drugs. The war on drugs is a, is a terrible descriptor it's a war on people, yeah people use substances
0: yeah that has been horrible for so many people and um it's just been a utter failure yeah
1: yeah so I'm a hopeful person my hope is that we can meet people where they're at that we can see potential in people I was saying that I had family that that saw potential in me and and that statement you know when you're a kid and your dad or mom tells you oh you got you got so much potential. I, I think they intended as this kind of compliment, but it's uh, it's a backhanded insult in a sense. It's a reality check. You're not living up to your potential. You're not who you could be, and this is true of all of us. And I think people like myself, when I was in my addiction, I acutely was aware of this. I knew that. I could be more than I was. I, I was not satisfied or happy with living that life, but I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. And if we can meet people where they're at, we can give them an opportunity to, to change. And it takes time, but we got to keep them alive.
0: Right, definitely. And, and I think when we look at the data and we look at the research, it really makes sense to, to do both of these things. And to figure out how to do it, because I agree with you, most people who are struggling with this, you know, and it's really negatively impacting their, their life, maybe not huge, maybe a little bit, they usually want to change, they want to do something different, they need the resource to be able to do something different.
1: Yeah, we, we could put a lot of money into treatment and recovery if we pulled that money away from the criminal justice system and the need to incarcerate people. And we shifted it over, like, take a look at the, what they've done in Portugal and how they shifted that money around and what a dramatic difference it made in people's lives.
0: Right. Definitely. Well, if anybody's out there and they're listening to this podcast, what would be the one thing you'd want to tell them? What would be the one thing you'd want to say?
1: I'm all about hope, so hang on to hope. If you're a family member and you have a loved one that's struggling with addiction, there is hope for that person. You can be the hope for that person when they don't have hope for themselves. You can be a healthy connection point. You can be someone who meets them where they're at and says, hey, I'm here for you don't cut them off. I encourage people to not cut them off. Don't draw the line and say, you're out of my life until you change. That just creates further disconnection and just perpetuates hopelessness. And if you're someone who's struggling with addiction, there's hope for you. Hang on to a little bit of hope. If you don't have any hope, but you want hope, well, that's a great starting point.
0: Right. Reach out, reach out, reach out. So thank you, Daniel. How do people find out uh, if they want more information, they want to contact you. How do they find you?
1: Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter, Daniel Snyder1. Uh, The organization I'm a part of in British Columbia, Canada is called We All Play a Role. So that's on Facebook at We All Play a Role Langley. And then I have a public Facebook page where I do all my advocacy, drug policy, opinion stuff at D G A Snyder with a Y
0: great awesome i will put that all in the show notes as well so anybody can just go there and get that information and click on the links that would be awesome and daniel once again thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom and advocating for you know better policy
1: thanks dwayne it's been a pleasure really enjoyed talking with you
0: thank you all right everyone thank you for listening to the addicted mind podcast As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 104. If you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend and think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode.